I hope that those songs minister to your heart this morning. They contain such wonderful truths that should stir us up to praise our great God. And um, it would be really my desire to unpack those types of truths. And I feel a bit like uh, Jude when he says that he had desired to write about the common salvation that was once for all delivered to the saints, but he found it's uh, it himself in a position where he needed to contend for the faith. And both, I think, by necessity of the importance of the topic at hand, as well as just our commitment to look at all of what God's Word says, we find ourselves in the text of Scripture that is, uh, in some ways, provocative to our minds. To give a little bit of context, we'll be in Exodus chapter 21, looking at verses 7 through 11, and I invite you to open your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be one nearby you, uh, under one of the seats in front of you. Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11 is a passage about slavery. And this um, is given after the Ten Commandments have been given to Israel, and the Lord, through Moses, continues to speak to the nation of Israel about how they are to live. And because of the sensitivity of this, we need to take our time and understand it. And I would, um, just by way of referral uh, for anyone who hasn't been here the last two weeks, maybe go onto our website and uh, check out the past two messages on this subject, um, because this message should not be necessarily heard in isolation from those. Now, if I were in your shoes, and I've heard that often from other preachers, you know, go listen to the message on the website. I never do that, but it just absolves me of responsibility for saying everything that's already been said about it. But know that there is a context to this, and I'm relying on what has already been said. Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 through 11 reads, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Let's bow together in prayer. Well, Father, we ask you that you would give us an understanding of this passage that you would calm our hearts before your word. You give us a confidence in the whole of your truth. And if it would please you, Lord, that we would leave this time together strengthened in our faith rather than discouraged or confused. And I ask you that by your kindness and in the power of your spirit, you would help me to speak what is true and right, biblical, and that by your kindness and your spirit, you would help your people to discern what is true and right and biblical. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My goal this morning is to encourage the saints that are here to trust God as he has spoken in his word. 
And I'll need to do that this morning by less of a sermon and more of a Bible study. And that's why I would encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you so you can look for your own, with your own eyes at what's there in the text. And as we approach it this way, Lord willing, the text will be explained in a way that does not distort what is there, but rather places it in the context of the whole Bible, specifically in the context of the Old Testament. One of the reasons that we need to deal with this delicately is because there is a, a proliferation of uh, people who would take a text like this and use it as really ammunition against the whole of the Bible and against the Christian faith. It is used as almost a laughing stock among certain people. There is a conversation between two scholars, uh, one a scholar of the New Testament and one a scholar of the ancient Near East, the setting, cultural setting of the Old Testament. Both of these scholars who have devoted their life to the study of the Bible are atheists. And as they have a conversation about it, they discuss this text right in front of us. Now, I'll recount to you a part of their conversation as I read it. I don't in any way intend to read it in a mocking way. Uh, this is what they said. It was, it was spoken, uh, which is not as smooth as a written passage. And so just keep that in mind. This is not intended to make fun of them the way they talk. If you heard them say it, it would sound very natural. But as I read it, it's maybe a little bit more jolting. The first scholar introduces the subject, and he says, quote, the one passage that I think some people may be familiar with if they've read the Ten Commandments and like kept reading to the next chapter, most people don't, most people don't read the Ten Commandments, but if they did, if they got to chapter 21, there's this very disturbing, for me it's always been the most disturbing slave law in the Bible, I don't know, but maybe there are worse than this, I haven't, I don't remember very well. And then he proceeds to read the text that we've just read, same verses. And he goes on and says, okay, so this sounds like, so I've got a daughter and I sell her to the guy who lives next door to be his wife or to be his sex slave or to be his mistress or what? And if he's not satisfied with presumably, you know, how that's going, probably sexually, I assume, then there are rules about, you know, what to do then, but really? Yeah, you can sell your daughter. This is the Bible, by the way. We're not talking about something off in Babylon or something. This is like, this is right there, right after the Ten Commandments. So could you like unpack this for us? So then the second scholar continues and he says, quote, and so oddly enough, and this is going to sound far more horrific perhaps to our modern ears, this law is supposed to be a protection for her. And so the situation that's being described here is you have a man, he goes into debt, and in order to satisfy that debt, he can sell his daughter. And in so doing, she enters into probably what is equivalent to concubinage. And so in that sense, what happens to her obviously very quickly is that he has sexual intercourse with her, and in their eyes, that devalued her, right? Because they valued the virginity of a woman. And so that virginity has been taken, and so now essentially her resale value has diminished, right? You've driven her off the lot, is the way that they viewed that, which is understandably horrific to our ears, as it should be. And then it's summed up this way. This is problematic all over the map, starting with a man 
who wants to sell his daughter. End quote. Do you hear the contention there? And how do we think about this? Well, just a, a bit of an evaluation of what they've done here. Notice that as they try to unpack and explain this, pa this passage, they assume a number of things. Number one, they assume the father is selling his daughter because he is in debt. The text does not say that. Number two, they assume the daughter is sold as a sex slave or a concubine. The text does not say that. Number three, the master immediately has sexual relations with her is what they assume, but note the text does not say that. That is assumed by them. And number four, they say, quote, they, again, they refer to her being like a, a used car now with diminished value, but note the text does not say that. These are all assumptions. But you also hear as they describe this that they are judging this law as morally wrong and problematic. Well, here's my response. First of all, where do they get those assumptions? It's not in the text. They're trying to bring in some of their knowledge of the surrounding cultures into their understanding of the Bible. But why do they think that the Bible and God is endorsing what they're describing there? We have to remember, first of all, that these laws that are contained in Exodus 21 and beyond are casuistic laws, they're case laws. Remember, they're if-then laws. If this happens, then you, here's how you respond. They are not apodictic laws, which say that this is what you always must do, given uh, this law, like you shall not steal, or you shall not commit adultery, or you shall not murder. These laws are rather describing circumstances, which when they arise, here is how you should respond to them. Furthermore, their tirade against this shows that they obviously have a bias against the Bible. And remember, these are atheistic scholars who have given their lives to study the Bible that they don't believe. And so, obviously, that their bias is to try to debunk the Bible, to try to discredit it or treat it as only a historical document that has had some religious significance over the age, but one which they don't believe is true. I find it rather ironic that somebody would devote their life to the study of something that they don't believe. And they don't. As they try to unpack and exegete, interpret this text, they fail in one fundamental rule of interpretation, which is that when you come to the Bible to understand what the Bible says, you should do your job and understand what the whole of the Bible says about a topic. But rather, they rip this text out, try to hold it up as a point of mockery, isolate it from everything else that the Bible says, and they culpably leave out other laws, biblical statements, and examples that would shed further light on this passage. And so at best, it is a misleading explanation. Even if their explanation is true, those laws were never intended to be isolated from the whole of what God has revealed. Never was Israel allowed to keep some laws and ignore others. All of the laws were of a piece and they were to be kept together, namely that they needed to love the Lord their God with all their heart and they needed to love their neighbor as themselves or to underpin every other application of the law. But perhaps most basically, 
And I want you to hear this. Perhaps most basically, as you evaluate a response to the Bible like that, you have to ask, on what basis do they, as atheists, judge what they read in the Bible as wrong? By what standard can they evaluate anything from a moral perspective in their worldview? Because in their worldview, there is no creator God, there is no ultimate purpose or direction of anything, there is no inherent value in human life, human life is merely the product of time and chance that happens to be around us as dust that has no really significance because we live, we die, go out of existence, and there is no consequence really to our life in the grand scheme of things. So what does it matter how one human piece of dust treats another human piece of dust in their worldview? And furthermore, by what then standard can they judge what is right and what is wrong? What intrinsic objective moral standard continues in an atheistic worldview through every culture, every time, in all places, everywhere? They have none. It's completely arbitrary, and so they stand on nothing and condemn the Bible as morally wrong. It's totally unacceptable, logically. And even if it was wrong, in their worldview, what does it matter? There's no consequence. There's no eternal judge to bring about righteousness. Why do they care? Why are they even studying the Bible anyway? That's enough of them for now. And I don't mean to mock them. I have prayed for them. And we ought to pray for those who think this way. It's tragic. But I want to encourage you that our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, had an exceptionally high view of the entirety of the Old Testament. He didn't scoff or laugh at it. He didn't think that it was wrong in any way. And so be encouraged for a moment by what one um, biblical author or, or biblical scholar says, a believing scholar, uh, about Jesus' view of the Bible. Don Stewart says this about, about Jesus' view of the Old Testament. He says that during Jesus' ministry, recorded in the four Gospels, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament 14 different books, including Exodus. He recognized the authority of the whole of the Old Testament when he refers to the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. No peace left out. Jesus believed in the existence of Adam, Eve, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Jesus believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Jesus believed the literal events of the creation of the world, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, man of the reign of David, the wisdom of Solomon, Cain and Abel, Jonah and the fish. Jesus believed in the fulfillment of prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy ultimately consummated in him. Jesus obeyed the law. Finally, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was God's word. This is why Jesus could say something like in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you trust Jesus for your salvation, then you can certainly trust his perspective on the Old Testament. I hope that encourages you. But now we need to take the task a little bit closer to the text and think, What's going on here? 
What is happening in Exodus 21, 7 through 11? What are these verses recounting? And here I want to give you a basic summary form of what the passage is saying. It's saying this. When a woman, by the decision of her father, is contractually sold to another man to live in his household as a maidservant, who is expected to become his wife, or a wife of somebody in the household, then she is to be cared for, protected, and provided for. And when those things are not happening, she must safely be released from that household. That's what the text is saying. There's an arrangement between a father and another man by which he is going to entrust her into another household with the expectation that he, she will become the wife of someone in that household. And as she goes through that process, she is to be cared for, provided for, protected, and if they don't keep their end of the bargain, then she is to be cared for in her release from that household. This text is not condoning implicitly or explicitly sexual slavery of the woman, polygamy, concubinage, the sale of a daughter as property. Still, read through this and you probably have some questions that come to your mind. First one is probably, why on earth would a father ever sell his daughter? None of you have on your calendar for next Tuesday, go to the marketplace and sell my daughter. And so it's just kind of leaves us a little bit ruffled. So I want to unpack this a bit more and by asking some questions. And the first one is, is that why is the father selling his daughter? The second question is, why can't she go out like the male slaves? Third question is, what does it mean that she did not please her master? Is she really a used car? Number four is, why can another wife be acquired? So let's look at those questions one by one. The first question is, why is the father selling his daughter? And the best answer is simply, the text does not tell us. We can create lots of scenarios, both ones that would justify it and ones that would criminalize it. But the simple fact is that we are not told of the motives of the father in selling his daughter. But still, it, it just seems completely unacceptable to us. I'm so thankful the Lord has given me three boys and I'm especially thankful that he gave me a little girl. And it's just inconceivable to ever think of exchanging her for money. So it jars us, and it jarred those scholars. I asked my kids last night, because they've known that we've been going through this, uh, this passage, these passages on slavery, I asked them if there's anything I should say about the topic of slavery in the Bible, and one of my kids said, you should say to them, don't sell your daughter. So even children think that selling a daughter is unacceptable. I want to give you an explanation of what's going on here. And it's so important that we understand the, the cultural separation we have from the original audience and not look on that separation with disdain, but rather seek to understand it. According to one commentary, they describe what's going on this way. They say, 
This paragraph is troubling to modern ears, but given the way that marriages were contracted and the way people lived in the ancient world, it was a good provision for people who might want to find a better life for their daughter. The word ama, which is the word used in our Bible to translate it as slave or maidservant, the word ama refers to a female servant who would eventually become a concubine or wife. The sale price included the amount for the service as well as the bride price. In other words, what she would do as she goes into a household and works on household items as well as what was required within that day and age to acquire a wife. Goes on, the arrangement recognized her honor as an Israelite woman, one who could be a wife even though she entered the household in service. The marriage was not automatic, as the conditions show, but her treatment was safeguarded come what may. The law was a way then for a poor man to provide a better life for his daughter. Again, we have to understand the cultural gap and seek to span it as we want to rightly understand this passage. Right after Priscilla and I were married, um, we got married, by the way, and, and neither of us had employment. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that uh, to anyone, but it was the way that the Lord had us start out, and I wouldn't change it. And so we needed to find jobs right away, and what we agreed on was that Priscilla would find something of a temporary job while I would spend my time looking for something more of a permanent job that would provide for us long term. And so Priscilla got a job waiting tables at a Japanese-Korean restaurant and I went to look for work. After I found a job, and we prepared to move across country, Priscilla's employer uh, was informed that she was going to be leaving her job in a, in a matter of weeks. And so the employer sat Priscilla down, had a little chat with her, and said, you let your husband go to California, and you stay here and work for me. Priscilla, very sweetly said, no, that's not going to happen. Shocking to our ears, but this woman came from a different culture from us, with some different expectation and norms for how people apparently begin their marriage. It wasn't inherently wrong, although the Bible does say that a husband should devote the first year of his marriage to his wife and not go off to war and to take care of his house. But it doesn't necessarily mean that this woman was thinking too wrongly about our marriage or anything. It was, a, it was just a cultural shock to some degree. And my point is bringing this up is simply to point out that different cultures deal with things differently. And what was unthinkable to us appeared relatively normal to others. And so it is the matter of fact that cultures do marriage differently than us. And just to simply bring it to the light, the way that we do marriage in our culture in the West is not necessarily all that great. We mess it up all the time. And so should we look with disdain at another system that requires a, a, a transaction of finances between families to secure and protect and care for the woman who's being entrusted into another family? Not necessarily wrong. It's just completely unfamiliar. As this daughter is sold, it says that he's selling her as an ama, 
again translated as slave or maidservant, and that word ama is maybe more elaborated on this way. It could be, according to one theological dictionary, typically a female who is in need of some protection and is eligible for marriage. But she would basically enter a household as a servant, attending to the needs of the household, really as some form of compensation for what she was doing. That's why the money was exchanged. But things get get messy when the man of that household then takes on a servant who he wants to acquire as a wife when he's already married. That gets very, very messy. And there are examples of Amaz in the Old Testament who become a wife, and it gets messy when the man is already married. Consider, for example, the story about Hagar. Remember Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have a child together, and then Sarah gives um, Abraham her ama, and the child is brought into the world, Ishmael. You remember what a big mess that was. And then there's Bilhah and Zilpah, Rachel and Leah's maidservants. Rachel and Leah married to Jacob, uh, their father Laban, having pulled one over on Jacob after Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and then he replaces her with Leah, and then he serves another seven years uh, for Rachel again. And but when they cease, when they can't have kids, then they give Jacob their amas. And read those chapters. It's a big mess. So the Bible in no way endorses an ama becoming the husband or the wife of a man who already has a wife. Just by example, it's kind of ruled out as not being a good idea. Many people assume that this is a woman becoming a concubine. But you need to know that there is another word in the Hebrew language for concubine. It's very specific and for that role particularly could turn into this Alma becoming a concubine, a concubine kind of being like an auxiliary wife almost, but not with all the rights and privileges of a wife. And we think, well, that's so strange. And a man would have a concubine, but do you know what the definition of a concubine is? According to one dictionary, it's a woman with whom a man cohabits without being married. That's interesting. That happens all the time. We look with our modern eyes at an ancient text with disdain and say they got it so wrong, so backwards, they're so barbaric in their conduct. But do we really have any better ethic than they? We have concubines all over the place in our society. We just don't call them that. Call them girlfriends or living cohabitation. Definitionally, it's the same thing. It happens all the time. It's all this scoffing about the Bible and its ethic, so-called. Let's look at the mirror. In this case of Exodus 21, it does not necessarily mean that she will be a concubine. We're saying that she should be a concubine. It doesn't say anything of the sort. 
But if it does turn out that she becomes a concubine of the man, if he treats her that way, that does not mean that God endorses the practice. It just means that he legislates it to some degree for the protection of the woman. I think that the expectation of this text is that she will become a wife of a man of the household to which she is entering. That's likely why the father has sold her with the expectation that she would become a wife and securing her protection in another household where she would function ultimately as a wife. I think the main language that is used here to show that is when it says the master has designated her for himself or designated her for her son. I think this is intending that this is a lifelong arrangement. I think an important example in the Bible is, um, is Ruth. The book of Ruth is that wonderful story of um, Ruth attaching herself to her mother-in-law after she's lost her husband, and uh, her mother-in-law has lost her husband and her sons. And Ruth the Moabite attaches herself to Naomi, and they return back to the land of Israel. And they're basically destitute. They have nothing, no one to provide for them, to care for them. And Ruth goes out to begin gleaning just to get some food to eat. And she happens to go to the field of Boaz, who is a, a relative of Naomi's. And they concoct this plan where Ruth is going to basically go and seek the protection of Boaz. And she goes in the middle of the night while Boaz is asleep, goes and lays down at his feet. Boaz is startled awake and asks the question in Ruth 3.9, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your ama. And then she says this, Spread your wings over your servant, your ama, for you are a redeemer. The idea is that she is now this man's servant in a sense, and she was asking for his protection through marriage so that she would be cared for, provided for, protected. And Boaz goes through the ritual, really, in Ruth 4, where he has to go and buy a field, and almost, in a sense, buy Ruth along with the field. It's, it's so foreign to our modern ears, but in the end, the heart of Boaz is to protect this woman, to care for her, to provide for her, to love her. So I think the answer to the question, why is the father selling the daughter as an ama? Well, I don't know his motives, but I think the best explanation is it's for marriage, arranged by the father for the good of the family and the daughter. And question number two is, why can't she go out like the male slaves? That's what it says at the very start, when she sold this way, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. It seems unfair, but I think the obvious idea is that whenever Whatever transaction has taken place is a transaction of permanence. The relationship here is between the master and the ama is meant to be permanent. It implies permanent care, protection, provision of the woman. And it's implied by the fact that if he does not provide for her, then she's then to go out. So it's to be a permanent relationship of provision and protection. And notice, and it's very important as you see this text, these instructions are not about what this 
woman is supposed to do for her master, but really the whole instruction is about what the master is to do for this woman. Verse 8, it says, he shall let her be redeemed. Verse 8 says, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. Verse 9, he shall deal with her as a daughter. Verse 10, she, he shall not diminish her food, clothing, or marital rights. I include then this, this relationship is intended to be and agreed to be permanent. And if the master does not do what he is supposed to do, then there is a way out for the ama, which is why she can't go out as the male slaves. It only goes out when there is protection and provision for her made through another means. And again, I think the most likely intention is that she's been acquired by him as a wife for himself or for his son. Again, verse 8, he who has designated her for himself. And verse 9, if he designates her for his son. And I think that this is a designation for being a wife because look at what it says when he designates her for his son. How is she to be treated? As a daughter. Doesn't getting any closer or more personal in a sense than that as far as provision, protection, and care. So what does it mean if he designates her for himself? How is he to treat her? Well, as a wife, I would presume. Also because it says he's to give her her marital rights. A concubine had none of those. Only a wife would have that. And this sheds more light on why there's that kind of exchange between the father and this man. Question number three. What does it mean that she does not please her master? Is she really a used car? I think the situation is that while she is still an ama, he determines then that he doesn't want her as his wife. Before she's come into that role of being a wife, something about her has displeased him and he determines that he doesn't want to proceed with the contract. In that case, the Bible says that he is at fault. He is the one who has broken faith. And we don't know what she did per se. Some descriptions of similar language in the Bible using this language of displeasure is that Saul was displeased when people were singing about David's ten thousands, or Samuel was displeased when Israel asked for a king, or Isaac was displeased when Esau went after Canaanite women, women, or consider when Vashti's husband in the book of Esther tries to parade her around at his drunken feast and she doesn't come and he uh, says, you're done. Men are fickle. And this happens in our time, doesn't it? Where a man is totally infatuated with some woman and then it just kinda changes, like he changes a car and he's done. Bad analogy, because she's not a used car. She's more than that. And that's the whole point. She is to be protected and provided for as a human being who is to be loved. The point is not really that she, what she did to displease him. The point was that it was his fault that this is coming to an end. And if that was the case, he couldn't do whatever he wanted. He needed to let her be redeemed, and not just to anyone. She needed to remain within a covenant family. And it was through a formal ceremony that this redemption would happen, where it would be made absolutely plain that she did nothing wrong, and the man was at fault for not keeping his deal to care for and provide for her for life. Remember, the earlier interpretation was that this man takes this woman's virginity flippantly, 
and then discovers he doesn't like her, but that's completely unacceptable to the context of Scripture. That's not what's happening. She is not some sexual object. Because of this, the Bible is very clear. Once a relationship is consummated through physical intimacy, those people are glued together. And especially the Old Testament does not allow easy dismissal of that woman because she was not pleasing to the man. Look at Exodus 22, 16, or Deuteronomy 22, 28 to 29, or Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24. I know I said it fast, come after me, come up afterwards or re-listen to it again. But the Bible does not endorse a view where you just get to taste the goods and then dismiss her as soon as you don't like it. We ought not to think that these laws would be thought of in isolation from the rest of what the Old Testament says. This was a father, most likely, who was putting his daughter into another house for the price that is contractually obligating her master to take care of her and ultimately take her on as a wife. But God realizes we have problems deep in our hearts. And things don't always go on as planned or as should happen. And again, we look at this, modernize, and think, is this is our kid. Well, how often do relationships go bad in our society? And who is the one who pays? It's the woman. You know, of a situation where a man seduced a woman brought her to a courthouse, and got married because she would not have sex with him unless they were married. And he used her and then got rid of her. And she's kicked to the curb with all of the consequences and baggage of what just happened. And these laws were given to protect that woman from those types of things happening, to deter it, to restrain the evil influence of the heart of man so that women would be protected in that society, not treated like a piece of meat. How often does this happen in our society? Where men just use a woman as a sexual outlet and then kick her to the curb. This would be a way of publicly communicating she is not at fault. Even if she was sexually misused, which I don't think is what is being handled here. Even if she was, this is a public way of communicating it's not her fault. When sin exists, these things will happen. And is God wrong for writing into his holy law protection in the event of unholy occurrences? Let God be true and every man a liar. Are we to judge his governance of his people? They are his after all. He made them, he rescued them, he knows them. And like Jesus, he knows what is in man and does not entrust himself to any man. He knows what they need and how to keep evil at bay and protect those who are in trouble. Woe to those who would judge his word. Woe to those who would stand in judgment of God. Woe to those who think that they know better than God. May God rescue them from their arrogant blindness. Last question, question number four is, why can another wife be acquired? All it says is, if he takes another wife to himself, 
It doesn't say he must or he should or he ought to. It's not that kind of language. It just says, if he does, I have to give such a brief explanation of polygamy. I'm already dealing with slavery. I can't really add polygamy to it. That's just too much. But know this. According to Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe, who sum it up so well, they say monogamy is God's standard for the human race. This is clear from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible that God set the pattern by creating a monogamous marriage relationship with one man and one woman, that's Adam and Eve. And anytime you read about polygamy or concubinage in the Bible, it's always messy. Yet it happens. Happens even today. I had a a man that I was meeting with um, a number of years ago. He was from another country and he was in the United States to work in the fishing industry to make a lot of money because he said he needed to take care of his wives. Yeah, with an S. Very young in my pastoral ministry, I had to do all I could to not let my face show the absolute shock of what I just heard. But this was just normal for him. It happens. And in the case that does happen, what do you do? Well, these laws are here to protect the woman, the one who is most vulnerable in that situation. And it says that he shall not diminish her food or clothing or marital rights. She can't just be kicked to the curb. And if he doesn't provide for her in that situation, she was not restrained to stay in that situation. Again, I just think of how often in our very own society, all around us, is so often, not exclusively, not always, but so often the woman who pays for these kinds of failures. In the beginning, they were mocking that this was a protection for women. Why would you mock protection for women? They don't understand. Romans 7.12 says, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Our society, in all of its modern arrogance of advanced values, generally doesn't have a clue how to treat women. It makes, makes a mockery of them by letting men dress up as a woman and calling him one. It makes a mockery of women by reducing them to merely their physical components. It makes abuse of them by sexualizing them from the very start and condoning and even advocating the frivolous giving of their bodies to almost anyone who wants it. It makes abuse of them by prostituting them through the prevalence of pornography. I think the Bible presents a much safer and better view of how women are to be treated than our culture even comes close to. Paul describes the law as a guardian that is meant to lead sinful people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find through Christ the consummate instruction about men and women when we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so they might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives. That's God's ethic. It's always been his ethic. But he realizes the corruption of man's heart and put laws in place to restrain the influence of the damage that sinful human hearts bring. I hope you're encouraged. by the word of God in its excellent standard. Let's pray. Well, Father, you've given us serious things to think about, and I pray that you would, you would help us, Father, to stand firm in the midst of a world that is so against you and against your word. Help us, Lord, to be a people who holds rightly to your view of men and women, of marriage. Lord, your ways are always right and good and true. Forgive us of our sins that doubt you, sins that corrupt your ways. Thank you that you restrain our evil. May you continue to sanctify us so that we might be more like our Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here.